as we uh, turn to the Word right now, we want to welcome those of you watching online as well as our venue across campus and our chapel next door and our Cactus Campus and SBC Northridge. Would you believe that was not planned? <laughs> no, we just want to give a special welcome to Northridge. You guys need to know, I've been telling you this for a while, this is a, a years, years, years answer to prayer. We uh, started praying over a half decade ago for a North campus and God seemed to just said, wait, 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 wait. And as we know, when we wait on God, good things tend to come and Northridge welcome because we feel so excited about the Better Together partnership that we're entering into today. And last night was a phenomenal uh, kickoff time at their Saturday evening service. And we trust that today will be as well. So I'm going to pray right now. We're going to turn to the word. Uh, before I do, let me do mention that we're uh, starting a new series today. You'll notice that in your bulletin called The Fall. And some of you are thinking, oh man, that's going to be a downer. It's actually not. Uh, you're going to find that as we study and understand what uh, the fall is according to Scripture and, and even importantly how it's affected our culture today, it's going to actually get your heart pumping. You're going to have a, a deeper understanding of God, yourself, the world around you, and you can't talk about the fall without talking about redemption, what God's answer is to the fall. So this is going to be a great five-week series here at our church. I'll talk more about it later, but uh, today we kick it off. So why don't you bow with me and let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. Father God, I thank you for uh, your church. Uh, this is a weekend, God, where obviously we're focused on your faithfulness uh, to your church, your movement in our lives and in the lives of our congregations. And so, Father, I pray that as we gather as one church now, as Cactus Campus, Venue, Chapel, Shea, now Northridge, that, God, you would unite us under your word, unite us under Jesus, and Father, as we tackle this incredibly important but often misunderstood subject, God, I pray that you'd get some clarity to our lives today. And even more importantly, Lord, may we be drawn closer to you as a result. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. So I got to tell you, ever since I can remember in my life, I have felt that there is something not quite right with this world of ours. It's true. I mean, I can remember even when I was a, a real little guy, uh, not raised in a religious or church going home, no Bible, no family devotions, no spiritual instruction. I can remember thinking even as a, as a young elementary school kid that something doesn't feel right about the world around me. And don't get me wrong, psychologists might be tempted to say, well, I guess you had a troubled childhood. Not at all. I grew up in a very safe, wonderful, middle-class town in Ohio. I grew up in a very stable, solid 20th century family. In fact, the family I grew up in is very different than how families are today. I grew up in a family that didn't have an internet. I grew up in a family that didn't have cable television. 
I grew up in a family in which the newspaper was delivered every morning to your house, and that's where you primarily got your news. And the reason that's important is that when you're a child growing up in a home like that in the 1960s and into the 70s, that was a time where parents felt very strongly to shelter their children from the harshness of the world around them. I mean, Vietnam was going on at that time and the race riots of the 60s and the Watergate scandal. And as a little guy, I knew none of that. All I knew is I was growing up in this small town in Americana playing sports and having dinner five nights a week with my family. It was in many ways an idyllic childhood that I grew up in. And yet here's what you need to know. Even given all of that, the harshness of the world would creep into my safe world and I would start to realize something's not right on planet earth. I can remember when the first times I realized this, I came home one day and my mom was weeping into the arms of my dad. And I was confused. Mom didn't cry all that often and I didn't know what had happened. And dad sat us down and explained that mom's best friend, Betty, who lived in the town over, had been murdered. And I couldn't even compute that as a first grader, you know, growing up. And it would take years later for me to understand exactly what murder is, why it happens, but it didn't feel right. The next summer, we were away on a trip, and Dad got a call that one of his good friends, a psychologist, had died. And when I asked Dad how he died, my dad said he died by suicide. And I said, what's suicide? And my dad always had a technical explanation to everything. He said, suicide is self-murder. I didn't even know what he meant by that, but I, I knew it wasn't good. And these events and many more that crept into my childhood made me realize at a very early age that something was off, something was not right in the world around me. And then as I grew into adolescence, my teenage years, to add insult to injury, I realized something even further that rocked my world. Now watch this. And that is that the uncomfortableness that I felt in the world around me was also an uncomfortableness that I felt about me. In other words, I began to realize that there's not just something wrong with this world, but there is something wrong inside of me. And watch this, not because of the world, but because of something innate inside of me. I can remember as a teenager realizing that I'm incredibly self-centered, incredibly self-protective, and prone to irrational outbursts of anger. I know it's hard to picture a teenager like that, but just go with me on that. <laughs> but my dad would tell me constantly, he would say, Jamie, the world does not revolve around you. Because I was such a selfish teenager, and though I resented my dad saying that to me, I also realized there was something not right in me. Uh, philosophers would go on to call this an existential angst, something not right inside my soul, something that seemed not how it should be. We're going to move on right now, but as far as back as I can remember, even given a privileged and wonderful childhood in so many ways, I have felt there's not something quite right with this world of ours, and even something not quite right with me. Can any of you relate to this? I think most of us can. I think most of us would not try to make the argument that this world is just fine as it is and that everything is the way it should be. Nobody in their right mind makes that argument. We all know something is not right, even the irreligious among us. And the question that I need us to wrestle with today and in this entire series is this. What specifically, in your opinion, do you think is wrong with the world and even us? 
And more to the point, how would you personally explain what is wrong? What possible explanation do you have as to why the world is the way it is and what can and should be done about it? Some of you right now where you sit in Cactus Venue Chapel in Northridge, you're thinking right now, well, I don't really want to answer that question. I just want to have a nice sermon and go on to lunch today. Well, the reality is, is that we have to answer questions like these at times in our lives because they're important questions that form our worldview, and every worldview has to answer these. Philosophers, theologians, scientists, economists, sociologists, teachers, academicians, even lawyers, doctors, and business people need to wrestle with what specifically is wrong with this world and why it is the way it is and what can be done about it. And the reason that we know we have to wrestle with these questions and answer them is because we've all learned that problems require solutions. Amen? Problems require solutions in life. That's your whole world. And there was one thing to do so on a smaller level in your life. Today and over this series, we need to explode it to a bigger level and ask the question, what is the problem with this world and humanity in general? And then what might be a solution that we have for it? So in our time remaining today, I want to share with you, this will not surprise you, what the Bible says is wrong with us. And some of you are tempted to tune out right now because you go, I know what the Bible says. No, you don't. There's a lot more to what the Bible says than you might realize. If you or I are having a cup of coffee and I said, explain to me the fall of humankind in its complexity and its profundity and in its detail and show me the passages and how they play them, you'd have a hard time doing that. Most of you would be. So we're going to give you kind of a primer today on what the Bible says is wrong with this world and even what some of the solutions are. And we're going to look at a couple of competing views as we go along. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to be the judge, even if you're already a convinced believer, I want you to be the judge on the cogency and the soundness of Christianity's answer as to how and why things have gotten the way they are. And here is what the Bible says. This is point one in your outline. It's the best summary I can give you of what the Bible says is wrong with this world and why we all feel it, and that is that humanity has fallen from our original created position, and we are now born, each of us, with a sinful nature. Let me repeat that. This is the best summary I could ever give you of what the Bible says. Humanity has fallen from our original created position and we are now born with a sinful nature. For 2,000 years, theologians have called this the fall. It's the Bible's explanation as to what has happened to the world that has led us to where we are today. And believe it or not, it's neatly summed up in just one verse in the Bible that actually gives us kind of a Cliff Notes version of all that the Bible lays out. So if you're looking for one passage, one sentence that lays this whole thing out, here it is. It's Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And it says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sin. It's kind of poetic when you think about it. I mean, one man and sin and death and all men and all sinned. I mean, it's kind of a, a, a chiastic thing going on here, kind of in a poetic way. But it's actually really rugged 
and gritty in what it's trying to communicate to us. I want to show you the process and flow of the argument being laid out here because it's very, very profound in helping us understand the world around us. Notice that it begins by saying, therefore, just as through one man. Anybody know who that one man is? Here's your hint right here. And that one man is referring to Adam. It's interesting. Romans was written probably around 50 or 60 AD. And thousands of years earlier, there was another book written that made it into the Bible, the book of Genesis, the beginnings, the very first book in the Bible. And Genesis chapters one through three outline the story of Adam and his wife Eve. Adam in the Hebrew simply means man. So Adam, Adam in the Hebrew just means the first man. So the Bible is talking about the very first created man and then the very first created woman, Eve. And it tells us that they are created by God in his image. And do you remember how God described Adam when he was first created? He he called the animals and the plants and the vegetation all good. And he called Adam what? Very good. So God was really pleased when he made us in his image. And he put Adam and Eve in this garden and he said, you're gonna live forever in this garden in perfect bliss and there was only one rule. Wouldn't you love it if there's only one rule in your life? Adam and Eve have only one rule and God said you can eat from any tree in this garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree because if you do, you're going to die. That's pretty ominous. And yet, as we all know, you get to turn to page three in the Bible, uh, in Genesis three, Adam and Eve eat of that tree. Their eyes are opened to not just good, but now to evil. And the Bible says that through their choice, they're choosing that, 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 that tree or that option that evil now invaded their soul. And Adam, as we're going to see in a minute, represents, even though he was very real, he represents us. He's what theologians are going to call our federal head. We'll see what that means in a minute. But before that, notice that as soon as Adam and Eve ate that fruit, ate from that tree, sin entered into this world. Now, this is really significant. There's been a lot of philosophy and theology written on this over the years. Adam and Eve Eve had true moral freedom. They used that freedom to make a choice that would plunge all of humanity into a state of sin. Our world doesn't like that word sin today. It's actually not as threatening of a word as we make it out to be. It's the Greek word hamartia, and it simply means error, failure, missing the mark. And here's the issue we have to wrestle with in the context of Romans chapter 5. When it says that, that, that through one man sin entered the world, it notice it's singular sin. So does it mean Adam just made an odd bad choice way back then? Kind of a big oops? Or is sin referring to kind of a big picture body of sin, a sin nature that now has invaded this world. Which one do you think it is? It's the sin nature. In other words, Adam didn't make a slight mistake. No, when Adam and Eve sinned, it brought this whole world into sin, or sin into this world with them. And the reason we know that's true, we don't have time to to go into this today, but it's really, really profound and meaty stuff. When you read Romans six and seven, which you can do on your own later, It's description of sin in our life. It's very, very interesting because it describes sin not as a one-off, not as an oops, but as this power within us 
that makes us do things we don't want to do. Here's some of the description. It tells us that sin reigns in our lives, that we obey its desire, that sin seizes an opportunity, that it deceives us. Any, any of you can relate to this? You see, now we're nudging up against what I felt in seventh grade. <laughs> that when I started to realize that when my dad said, Jamie, this world does not revolve around you, and that there was something in me that was very self-centered and self-protective. And, and I had this anger that, I, that, that didn't come from growing up in a wonderful home in which I was loved. It, it came from something inside my soul that the Bible says is also in your soul. And Christianity has an explanation for that. Sin, we're all born with it. We're born, if you will, with some strikes against us right out of the chute. Adam ate Sin came into this world, and then remember what God told Adam would happen if he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, that's the next thing Romans tells us happened, and that is death. Now, here's the question I need you to wrestle with right now. When God said to Adam and Eve, you will surely die, do you think he meant physical death or spiritual death? Which one do you think it is? Spiritual, that's what most Christians would say, and you're 50% right. Because the actual answer is both. You see, Adam and Eve were designed to live in the garden forever, communing with God forever. And when sin came into this world, two things happened. One, God said, now your days will be limited. Your body's gonna grow old, it's gonna eventually shut down, and you're going to die. And we'll see in a minute, God gives a great hope after that, but, but life here on earth will now be shortened. And then the second thing he did is he said, because I can't be in the presence of sin, you're now banished from the garden. And so now there was separation from God. Let's call it a spiritual death. Adam and Eve brought into this world sin, and now sin was reigning in and through their lives. At Romans 8.22 would say it this way, since that time, the entire creation has been groaning. You see, that's why we feel something's not right here, because it's not. This is not the way God intended it. It's not the way he wanted it. Adam, sin, death. This is the explanation the Bible gives. And then you're ready for this because now it really heats up. It tells us in Romans 5, 12 there that it has spread to all humanity. It literally uses that word spread. It says, and through this death and sin spread to all men, meaning all of humanity. And that word spread is a really visual picture in the original language that Romans was written in. It, 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 it pictures a target uh, and, and that you're shooting at this target with, say, an arrow or a bullet, and that behind this target is another target and then another target and another target, and, and that bullet or arrow has so much trajectory behind it that it goes right through the first target and right through the second target and right through the third target and on and on and on. And that's what the picture is of what happened to humanity when Adam fell. Is that this fall now has affected every generation since that time so that all of us are born dealing with the fall, both individually and as cultures. And this is why the body, you might have heard this phrase, this is why theologians talk about what they call original sin that we're all born in a sinful state with a original sin in us that goes back generations. And the obvious question, and we're gonna spend about two minutes on this right now, the obvious question that many people wrestle with is how? I mean, how could sin perpetuate from, from Adam to us? I mean, I didn't do anything wrong. 
Well, there's three things that the Bible uh, insinuates here. And again, we're going to whip through these fast, but these are, I mean, volumes of books have been written on these things. Uh, but, but what the Bible points out is that Adam was our representative and that as a result of that, sin has been imputed to us. It's called imputation, meaning it's been credited to our account and that we now live a pattern of sin in our lives. So again, these first two are really hard for people, especially in 21st century America, to understand, but the Bible's really clear on this. I mean, this is what the Bible says. It says, through one transgression, meaning Adam, there resulted condemnation to all men. Through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So in a very real way, when Adam sinned, all of humanity at that time, because he was our representative, was in Adam. And his sin is credited or imputed to our account. And again, you know, as soon as you hear that, you want to scream from the mountaintop, that's not fair. fair. Are you guys awake? Let's say it again. That's not fair. And you know what the reality is? In many ways, it's not. Pascal was one of the greatest Christian philosophers and mathematicians that ever lived. And Pascal wrote on this topic that when he discovered original sin, he felt scandalized. This isn't fair at all. And even writes, I'm not going to give you the quote because it's an older English and all this, but he basically says, this isn't rational. It's not fair at all. But then he says, but it is what the Bible says. And so like other things of God, whether we fully understand it or not, it's God's explanation for what has happened. But if you feel completely scandalized by this representative imputation thing, then this will take the edge off. I I love this one because what what we're basically saying here that you and I continue to live the pattern of Adam is we're saying that if we were in Adam's place, we would have done the same thing. And in your more humble moments, you admit that. But everybody shows that by their behavior. All of us show that we are patterning ourselves after Adam, as one great second century Jewish writer once said, each of us has become our own Adam. Years ago, of all places, People Magazine decided to do a study on sin. True story. Back about 30 years ago, People Magazine decided that because sin was a topic that culture at that time was talking about, they took it upon themselves to do an in-depth questionnaire and research study on what their readers think of sin. And so they sent a lengthy survey out to thousands of their readers and asked them to rank 51 activities in their own lives on how guilty they feel when they engage in these activities on a scale of 1 to 10. So 1 being I don't feel guilty at all and 10 being, man, I feel super guilty for if, I, if I was to ever do this activity. 51 activities. And they took all the results and they compiled them together. And you're going to love this. They came up with what they called a syndex of sins. So they wanted to index all of these sins according to the readers of People Magazine. You can find this online. And it's actually very, very interesting. As you would imagine, in the upper nines, like 9.8, 9.7, 9.6, occurs things like murder, rape, incest, and child abuse. Most people realize those are heinous things, and those would rank very high on the syndex. I found interesting, at about the 7.5 range, you have adultery right next to industrial spying. (laughs) So I, I guess some people think those things are both kind of really bad. 
In the middle of the pack, at the five level, you have revenge, which I understand, right next to parking in a handicap zone. <laughs> I think the readers of People are really smart. Uh, idle gossip ranked at about a four. Laziness ranked at about a four. Is this not revealing of our society? Even 30 years ago, premarital sex ranked a mere 3.7 on the scale of how bad people thought that might be. Swearing ranked a three and not voting ranked a three as well. Here's my point in mentioning this to you because I find this so revealing. Even everyday people in America realize that they have sin in their lives and that they do things that they know are not right and they feel bad about them and they agree in their own way they're their own Adam. In fact, this was the most revealing thing about this study. It said overall, the readers of People Magazine said they commit about 4.64 sins per month. I would submit it's a lot more than that, but that's a good start, right? And, and so we need to see that this is the Bible's explanation for what has happened to us. Let's review it real quick because we're going to accelerate here. The Bible says that Adam engaged in sin through his own free choice. That brought sin into this world and all of creation is groaning. That brought death and separation to humanity and it's come now to all humanity and none of us have escaped it. Yes, there's a lot of questions that still go along with it. People have been writing books for thousands of years on this. But this is the Bible's explanation of why and how the world has gotten to the way it is. And here's what's so compelling about this explanation of our fallen world. You ready for this? Even some leading atheists and agnostics agree with this concept of original sin and the fall. They don't believe in God. They certainly don't trust the Bible. But when presented with this concept of original sin and how things got bad, they go, that makes sense. Look at this. Alan DeBotton is one of the leading British atheists alive today. Young man who writes regularly on atheism and actually helps atheisms interact with theism. And he says this. He says, I love the concept of original sin. The idea that we're all fundamentally broken and fundamentally incomplete. He says the concept of original sin seems so plausible and applicable and also kind because it basically says, look, when you meet someone new, just assume that something major has gone wrong here. He says, treat everybody you meet as though they were laboring under some really big problem. There's a professor at Florida State University, again, who's one of the leading atheists in our nation, he says it this way. He says, with respect to the main claims of Christianity, I'm pretty atheistic. I'm an ardent evolutionist. I'm a philosophical naturalist. I think Christianity, however, is spot on about original sin. How could you think otherwise when the world's most civilized and advanced people, the people of Beethoven, Goethe, and Kant, embraced that slimeball Hitler and participated in the Holocaust? He says, I think St. Paul and the great philosophers or Christian philosophers, had real insight into sin and freedom and responsibility. And I want to build on this rather than turn from it. Michael Roos, professor of philosophy, Florida State University. You know, as a result of this and in light of this that I've maintained for years, and again, this is maybe something you've not thought about before, but this hopefully will change your perspective on how you interface with the world around you. I've maintained for years that this biblical concept of the fall 
is actually one of the strongest arguments for the cogency and truthfulness of Christianity. Even more so than our argument for the existence of God, even more so than our arguments for the veracity of the Bible, because that might not convince people. Ask someone around you that doesn't have much faith at all, what is wrong with the world? You feel it, you know it, but how do you explain it? And when they can't explain it, because most people can't, say to them, you know, it's interesting, my faith, whether you abide or not, has an explanation. I remember talking early on with one of my friends who was basically a Darwinian evolutionist. I took him to church way back in the 1980s, and there was a message like today on the fall. And we were in the parking lot, and we were coming out, and my friend looked at me, and he said, you know, we don't agree on the existence of God. We don't agree on really a lot that the Bible says, but I'll tell you one thing we agree on after this sermon. We agree that this world is really messed up and that the Bible has a pretty good explanation as to why. You see, we need to understand that one of the greatest apologetics we have is this idea of the fall. Many of you have heard this before. Many will complain about what they call the theistic problem of evil, that Christians claim to believe in a good God and an evil world, and that how can those two be, exist together? If God is good, why doesn't he eradicate evil? You know, or can't he eradicate evil, which would not make him really God? And yet what we need to realize today is that though that is a problem for Christians, and we've been wrestling with that for years, uh, their problem, meaning those who say that to us, is that they cannot even account for evil at all. In a very real way, they're borrowing my worldview in order to make an argument against me. They're using evil as the Bible lays it out and as the Bible explains it and tells us how it came here. But when you ask them how they have it or how they would explain it, many times they can't, most times they can't. Whenever I'm talking to a secularist or a naturalist, and I've been doing this for 30, 40 years now, and I ask them, how do you explain how evil got into this world? The number one answer I hear is that um, I don't have a need to answer that question. You'll hear that often. I hear it all the time. They'll, they'll, they'll say, you know what, that, that's a nonsensical question. I don't need to explain why evil is here. It just is here. And, and I love it when they say that to me because I say, well, you know what, then next time you ask me a question, I'm just going to say, I don't have a need to answer that question. <laughs> but you wouldn't let me out of that. You would say, no, your worldview demands that you have a need. And my simple point today is that every worldview out there needs to wrestle with what's wrong with this world and come up with some sort of satisfactory explanation. The Bible has one. The question is, well, what do the other worldviews say? How many of you ever seen the show BBC Earth? You ever watch BBC Earth? I gotta get you guys in a better television. If I asked you how many of you have seen like Modern Family or Two and a Half Men, it'd be embarrassing. You gotta stop watching that, all right? You need to watch things like BBC Earth, which is a wonderful documentary that shows the ocean depths and the forests and all of this. And it's just a, a wonderful way to broaden your mind on the world that we live in. But BBC Earth is obviously not put out by evangelical Christians. It's put out by a lot of secular scientists and things like that. Most of them are evolutionists. And they did something uh, two years ago that I thought was really gutsy. On their website, they came out with an article called, How Did Evil Evolve and Why Does It Persist? So from a, a secular, non-believing standpoint, they make it clear in this article that's what they're doing, that they want to try to explain from an evolutionary standpoint how evil came into being. It's a fascinating article, very gutsy. 
They begin by defining what evil is. And it's actually one of the best definitions I've ever seen. This writer talks about the dark tetrad. And she defines evil in four ways. You ready for this? She says the first level of evil is Machiavellianism, where you are manipulative, self-interested, and deceptive. She says the second level is psychopathy, where you are antisocial, remorseless, and callous. The third level of narcissism, where you are proud and lacking empathy. And then she says, just to round it off, let's add everyday sadism, where you enjoy cruelty. You ask me, that's a pretty good definition of the four categories of evil. And then what she does for the rest of the article is she walks through an explanation as to how and why these came into being from an evolutionary standpoint. When it comes to manipulation and greed, Machiavellianism, she says this, and this is a direct quote. She says, there's good reason to believe that the intentional deception underlying Machiavellianism has very deep evolutionary roots. It's just a good survival strategy. And then when it comes to psychopathy, psychopathic behavior, she says this. She says, we know that there are good biological reasons that mammals kill their young. Getting rid of offspring can be a smart idea because it allows the female to be available to reproduce if she's not having to look after a cub. Of sadism, she says, sadism may allow a person to maintain power and dominance. And she goes each through each one of these, and she's eventually showing, now this is really important, that when it comes to evolution's view of the survival of the fittest, that's why evil came into being, and that's why it needs to be here and is important. She's actually arguing that it's a good thing. She goes on to wrap up in the article. She says, I know it's a morally troubling argument, but perhaps dark tetrad behaviors are paradoxically beneficial to human and animal societies by encouraging other individuals to be on their guard and think carefully about their trust. We're keeping the species fit in a way. She says humans now generally view these behaviors as distasteful, even though deception, selfishness, and other evil traits appear to be widespread in nature, and they are generally beneficial for the survival of genes, animals, and species. Now, I need you to wrestle with me, wrestle with this with me for a minute, gang. That all sounds great on a BBC Earth documentary special in which from a scientific perspective, you're trying to explain how evil came to be. But let's make this eminently personal. The next time you are faced with an evil in your life, and I mean a terrible evil, the tragic loss of a loved one, the loss of a child, the violation of one of your kids, somebody doing something terribly unfair to you, a car accident that takes somebody way too early, or a tornado that ravages a community, Think of all the evil things that happen to us, an economy that goes south and people struggle to have a livelihood. Imagine the next time that happens to you and you go to a friend and say, man, why do these things happen? And they look at you and this is the best answer they have. Well, you know what? It's necessary for the survival of our race. Let me ask you a question. Would that make you feel good, yes or no? I don't think that's a satisfactory answer at all. People complain that Christianity's answer might have some holes in it. I got questions about it. But let me tell you this. After 40 years of being a Christian, 55 years of being alive, I've looked at every other answer that's been given to me. And I know I'm a little biased. But the reality is, is that I have yet to find anything as cogent and workable 
as the Christian response, the Bible's response to what has happened to us. No, at the end of the day, I find that the Bible gives us a rather clear, plausible, and workable explanation and understanding of why and how the world is the way it is. Adam, sin, death spread to all men. And even more as we go through this series, and I know we're getting down to the end of this, even as we go to this series, here's what you're also going to see. Now, this is really important. And that is that as much as the fall might stink, as much as you don't like it and I don't like it, here's what you need to know. God doesn't like it. He did not ordain this world to be the way that it is. He did not. He ordained the world to be a place of love and freedom and choice and choosing him and walking with him. But it fell. And here's the beautiful thing about God. Even after it fell, he now has another plan. And that plan involves redemption and Jesus Christ and forgiveness and power and sanctity from the Holy Spirit. All the things that we talk about here every week. Why do you think we talk about those things? We talk about them because they are the robust answers that the Bible gives for how we reverse the curse for how we deal with the fall in our lives and in the world around us and start to write what is so wrong. That's God's answer. In other words, he said, y'all made a big mess of things, but I'm a God of grace and love. And so I'm gonna enter into this with you. That's why Jesus came to this earth and we're gonna help start to rebuild things the way I originally intended. That's God's plan after the fall. And so here's what we're going to do in this series. It's going to be a really fun series, at least for me. Maybe I'll be the only one, but it's going to be a fun series. And that is that we're going to take a look at four ways that you are going to relate to, I promise, four ways that the fall is playing itself out in our current culture. And that's your second point here. But we need to understand that the fall plays itself out in each and every culture, including ours. This is really important to understand Every culture since Adam and Eve has had to deal with a stacked deck. They've had to deal with some cards missing from their deck. And they've had to play the hand dealt with them. And as they play their hand, they notice that there's some cracks in the foundation. Something happens within their communities that reveals the fall. We've looked at a lot of those today. And the question I want you to wrestle with now, because I've been wrestling with it now for about a year, is in what specific ways is the fall manifesting itself in Scottsdale or Phoenix or wherever you live online in the year 2019. What's going on in our culture that might clue us into the fall and therefore clue us into God and his redemption? And I was driving down the road the other day and it just I always try to put myself in your guys' shoes. I think, okay, as I ask them their question, what are they gonna say back to me? And I was driving down the road, four categories came to me so strongly that I actually had to pull over to the side of the road and write it down because I didn't wanna forget it. And here's what hit me, that if you and I were having a cup of coffee and I said to you, what is wrong with the world today? What's an evidence of the fall? You'd say, first of all, because I know you guys, you'd say, well, you know what? There's been a real loss of values going on in culture today. I mean, things used to be good and now they're not and people don't even have respect anymore and everything's partisan and, you know, people used to to have high moral values and now they don't anymore and, and there's this degradation going on in culture. And you'd be right. We're going to call that an abandonment of values. And then I say, if I was to say, feed me more, what else is wrong with culture today? You'd probably say, you know what, man, things are just going at a, at a terribly fast pace. 
I mean, it's accelerating when it comes to information and speed. I don't even have time to think anymore. And you'd be right. We're going to call that a frantic pace. And then if I said, speak to me more about what's going on in culture today that might be evidence of the fall, and this one is huge, you'd be saying, man, you know, 30, 40 years ago, everybody believed in God. Not everybody went to church, not everybody had a good church, anything like that, but we all at least agreed in America that God exists. Now the studies are radically different. We have this entire generation of nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who have no religious uh, beliefs at all. And that's upwards of 20% of our culture, mainly young people. And even among the older people, there's this giving up on God and, and, and Hollywood. Let's not even go there. They have this crazy view of God and all the things that they try to tell us about the spiritual realm. And you would be right. I'm going to generously call this a limited view of God going on in our culture. And then lastly, and this one's huge, a loss of hope. Suicide is at epidemic levels. Opioid addiction is out of control. People are self-medicating any way that they can. Our previous president that I know some of you didn't like, when he got into office, wrote a book called The Audacity of Hope. And I don't care what you think of him, but that topic is a relevant topic to America today. And we are the carriers of what hope really is as followers of Christ. We're going to take a look at what the loss of hope means. And so what we're going to do in this series here is we're going to follow this acrostic fall because it's all about the fall. And we're going to take on each one of these subjects one by one. And again, I can't stress strong enough, this is not going to be a downer of a series. I mean, I'm going to challenge you to invite friends and family to this series. And the risk we run is you're going to say, hey, come hear my pastor talk about the fall. (laughs) And you have to quickly say to them, but you know what? This is really a life-giving thing because it's one of the best explanations of what's wrong with this world. And more importantly, we're going to take a look at what God's answers are. We're going to take a look at what happens when we slow down and settle in with God. When we embrace values, commensurate with his will, when we broaden our view of who he really is and when we garner some hope in our lives. And if ever there was a time for you to invite a friend to church, now is it. You know, we've been praying for over a half decade for now what is our Northridge campus. We never knew how God would provide it. But for many of you who have been here in our high season, which begins now, you know what it's like. The parking lot is absolutely jammed. In fact, when I came in today, somebody was parking like two streets over just because they could get out of church quickly. I'd like to know who you are. But anyways, it's just the way that many of us function because it's crazy. And there's a lot of people and you can't find a seat. But look around today, gang. It's January, uh, what is it? Today's January uh, 13th. And, uh, and, there, and there's some seats available next to you. This is good. This is all by design. Cactus, venue, chapel, Northridge. We're all in this together. And if ever you decided to take a risk and invite somebody to church, we won't embarrass you. Now would be the time. Because I think God is going to work through our community with this understanding. And it'll better your soul as well. All of us deal with a fallen world. All of us need a bit more of the redemption that God offers. And he wants to do that in you. He wants to get you off the treadmill. He wants you to get some better values. He wants you to broaden your view of him. And he wants you to live in the realm of hope. And we can do that. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word that, at least for me, adds such clarity to my muddled mind. 
And God, we live in a world today in which we read CNN and Fox News and MSNBC and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and bestsellers and all that. And, and God, mixed all together, it can be very, very confusing. And we can forget, Lord, in the midst of that, what you have really said about our lives and about this world around us. And so I pray, God, that as we slow down here at our church and focus on this idea of the fall and what it really means for us, that, God, you would be pleased as we open up your book, that you would speak to us by the power of your spirit. And God, too, help us not be afraid to reach out to some seeking dear ones around us who could use a dose of your redemption. God, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for what you're doing in this church, in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. amen.